And I want to talk today to you about the filioque clause. Anybody heard about the word filioque? Okay. Filioque is a Latin word and it means from the sun. And basically, this word is the difference between what's considered the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Western Church, whether it's Protestant or Roman Catholic Church. And the word from the sun comes from the wording of the Nicene Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, uh, when it speaks about, if you go there and, and read about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it says that he proceeds from the Father, and that's the Eastern way of, of saying it, and then, and then the Western wording is from the Father and from the Son. <clears throat> now, from our perspective today, because we're not so theologically astute as those Christians of old, we think it's not a big deal, but over the centuries it, it has been a big deal theologically, but not only theologically. It has been a big deal culturally because we know that history... It's nothing but the development of creeds over time. When you, when, when you went to public school or to any kind of school, and read, when you're reading books, uh, you will be told that history is all about uh, mankind, wars, politicians, especially politicians, of course. The more people you kill, the better hero you are. You know, and, and that's especially right in Europe. And it's about emperors, and it's about economic conditions. From a Christian perspective, history is the development of our faith and nothing else. Everything else follows from it. Everything else goes back to it, is related to it, connected to it. And nothing makes sense except the development of the Christian faith over time. <clears throat> and what I'm, what I'm going to be uh, saying today is that the difference between the East and the West, as you see the West today, and as you see Eastern Europe, especially under the Eastern Orthodox Church, it all follows from this little word, filioque, and from the Son. And it's an important difference. All right, so... A Russian friend of mine some time ago who volunteered to translate some Reformed articles into Russian uh, wrote me and said, I have a problem. <clears throat> I don't know how to translate rule of law. It's such a normal phrase here in the States, right? When we speak about the rule of law, we know what it is almost, almost instinctively what it is when we speak about the rule of law. I said, sure, there should be a way. Because both words have analogs in Russian. I mean, there's a word for rule, there's a word for law. So basically, you should be able to translate it in Russian. It's not that, he said. <clears throat> the very phrase in the Russian context means something very different than what it means in the Western context. And I speak Russian myself. I'm a Bulgarian, but I speak Russian. I can preach in Russian, so I know there must be a way to translate it. But what he says, in the West, it means Law as a separate, separate authority to which all must be subject, both individuals and institutions. When you say the uh, rule of law, you mean that both the president and, and the lowest beggar on the street must submit to it, right? Each one equally. In Russia, though, law means the government and its decisions, arbitrary decisions sometimes. And therefore, rule of law, if you translate it directly into Russian, will mean rule by bureaucracy. 
He said, I can translate it directly, but the readers won't grasp the true meaning. Because the same words mean different things. This led me to think about a very important issue, and that is that faith has consequences. Now, you've all heard the different phrase here in the States, and that is ideas have consequences, but that is wrong. Ideas are consequences themselves. Okay? They are not original causes. You don't wake up one morning and just say, hey, I got this new idea. This new idea just comes from something else. That is in the background, and sometimes we don't, don't even realize. We give ideas a little too much credit for shaping our world. Ideas as concepts or as products of our mental activity are not creative. They are creatures themselves of something much greater than them. Okay? Well, many non-Christian thinkers have tried to attach great importance to ideas and ideologies. <clears throat> for example, the socialist occultist Herbert George Wells... In his Outline of History, it's actually a very interesting book to, to read if, if you want to know the pagan view of history, the socialist view of history. <clears throat> says that human history is, in essence, a history of ideas. <clears throat> and, uh, but history is not that. And in fact, since ideas are derivative of something else, to say that history is history of ideas makes as much sense as to say that history is history of technology or history of forms of property, or something else. To focus on ideas, to make history revolve around ideas, is to focus on the mind of man as the ultimate maker of history, and of man himself. Okay. <clears throat> I just want to see if I can... Cut something so that we, we, have, we have time for questions. Um, but the mind of man is shaped by something greater than the mind itself. Your mind is not creative. Learn to live with that idea. There's something bigger behind your mind that makes it tick, makes it work. <clears throat> and that greater thing is the faith of man. Okay? Ideas, reason, science do not appear of themselves. They're only a product of what a man believes about God or the gods. Tertullian, <clears throat> a great Christian apologist, when discussing what the Greek ideologists have done to the Christian faith in his On the Prescription of Heretics, exclaimed in chapter 7, What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And he ends that same chapter. That is a very popular statement. I mean, if, if, if you know, if, if somebody knows anything about Tertullian, they know this one. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? He ends the chapter with a statement that is not so well known, and it is, with our faith, we desire no other beliefs. And then he continues building his thought on the faith he has learned from what he calls the Porch of Solomon. Nothing else could be the foundation of his thinking but faith. That's why I said faith has consequences. Because that's the foundation of our thinking. Every culture, of course, is based on faith. 
And every culture is exactly the product of what we call the official faith. The faith that, has, that is taken for granted by the culture. Now you think Christianity is the faith of modern America, but it's not Christianity. It's, it's the, the, the almighty government, but uh, it's, it's an issue of another article. <clears throat> and every other faith is compared to that official faith and is, de- and, and, and is declared either mainstream, if it's, in, if it's in agreement with that official faith, or heretical, or wacko, or oddball, or anything else, if, if it is not in agreement with that faith. Even when a culture is officially based on rituals or on scientific laws or an ideological construct, like communism, for example, it is still based on faith in the ultimate nature of God, man, law, history, and the future. It's always based on faith. The faith of the pagan societies is kind of vague, lurking in the background of the unconscious when you ask a pagan a person, what do you believe? He will probably say, I'm an atheist or something. I don't believe in anything. But they still have faith. And it is behind the thick veil of myths, legends, liturgical rituals, superstitions, some philosophical mesh of sophistry and positivism. But they always have faith. Some kind of faith is there in the background. Pagans don't always realize how much their ideas are shaped by, by what they have chosen to believe. But whether they realize it or not, whether they admit it or not, they're always based on faith. Christianity, in the past, laid the foundation for a completely new kind of culture. Completely. We can't even imagine today the, the newness of the culture that Christianity created. A culture in which everything was not unconsciously, but self-consciously based on faith. Everything, thought, speech, and action was self-consciously based on faith. The new culture that Christianity built was a creedal culture from the very beginning. A creedal culture. Which means it started with the idea, with our faith... Credo in Latin means what? I believe. From the very beginning, that culture was based on the I believe. It was a statement of faith as the foundation of that culture. Self-conscious faith. The creeds were an important part of the practice of the early church. Not only later in the era of the councils, but from the very beginning, a confession of faith defined a church and separated the church from the world and from the false churches. Um, A vague faith, like a pagan faith, just lurking in the background of the mind in the shadows of the unconscious wouldn't do anymore. What was needed, a defined, communicated, and communicable faith. A faith that can be communicated to you and a faith that you can communicate to somebody else. And it had to be at the very beginning and everything. Because... Whatever was not of faith was sin. Anything. Not just Sunday morning. Anything. That was not of faith was sin. And therefore everything had to be based on faith. Clear, understandable, and understood faith. Hence the creeds and the councils of the early church. But for the last several centuries, the church has been unable to recognize the true, total, practical value 
of the creeds and the councils. We have looked at them as just some kind of religious code separated from the rest of life. We have looked at them as applicable to pure theology only. We have separated the history of the church with its creeds from the history of the world and of civilization. We have done that. Letting the two go in their separate courses. We have studied the creeds and the councils only in the context of the development of our modern theological doctrines. But we haven't seen them as the foundation for our modern ideas about everything. From science to education to psychology to economics to government and to the totality of our social order today. That's what we've done. Pagans, of course, write their histories of philosophic thought, not even mentioning the creeds and the councils. Why would they? Christian historians devoted to keeping the two worlds separate, the world of history and the world of the church and the creeds, write histories of the church but seldom show how what the church believed actually created a new civilization. I was actually speaking to a theologian and he looked at me and what was the new about the civilization that they created? A seminary professor. <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in a reformed seminary. They should, they're supposed to know better. Ironically, <clears throat> and to our shame, some of the best studies of how Christian theology created the modern world are written by non-Christians. Ask me later about books. I'll give you some really good books from written by non-Christians about how the creeds influenced modern civilization. We tend to separate theology from history, faith from ideas, the creeds and councils from the, founda- from the formation and the foundation of our social order. In short, we have been too busy looking for the ideas and their consequences, but we have not been studying <clears throat> our faith and its comprehensive consequences for shaping our worldview. We have left the creeds and the councils only for the church, church business, and our religious activities. But to the world outside of the church, we have taken only our ideas. This is called dualism, separating creeds from history, separating faith from ideology, separating faith from practice, is called dualism. In 1968, a unique book was published. A very unique book was published. The author was R.J. Rashtuni, and the title was Foundations of Social Order, Studies in the Creeds and Councils of the Early Church. It was not only the most unique book of all his books, of all his books. It was unique in the history of Christendom itself. No such book has been written before, and no such book has been written since. And if God is gracious to me, I will write one. What was unique about it was the way Rashtuni looked at the creeds and the councils of the early church. Not as pure theological exercise as our modern seminaries do. The creeds and the councils were the foundation not just of modern theology, but of our modern social order as we know it. The ideas of liberty, limited government... The dignity of the individual, rule of law, etc., were to be found in the decisions of the councils and in the creeds of the early church. For the first time ever, a Christian author looked at this part of church history 
based on the concept of faith has consequences. <clears throat> and show, showed how all our modern ideas are simply not working. Sometimes faithful, uh, faithful, sometimes twisted outworking of what we learned from the early church and its councils. The heresies of the early church went far beyond mere religious disagreements. Heresies in the early church were the foundation of statism, socialism, tyranny, worship of the states, government control, inflation, and all other stuff that, that we have today. And the orthodox creeds fought against this by standing for the orthodox faith and therefore for the orthodox social order. Which means liberty, habeas corpus, limited government, separation of powers of institutions, economic deregulation, low taxes, political and legal decentralizations, to mention a few. Rashtuni showed in his book how the decisions of the councils had direct influence into what people believed about the state, the family, the economic realm, science, etc. Very specifically, for the, from the very beginning, he laid out his thesis. <clears throat> and he says the following. Biblical creedalism is an assent, an agreement with God's creation, redemption, and government. It is passive because it affirms an act of redemption by the triune God of which man is simply the recipient by grace. But this passivity is the ground of true activity. Passive before God is the ground of being truly active. Okay? Man under God moves now in terms of true law, in terms of the canon of the scripture, to exercise dominion over the earth in the name of of the triune God. Christian creedalism thus is basic to Western activism, constitutionalism, and hope concerning history. Christian creedalism is as basic to Western activism, <clears throat> constitutionalism, and hope concerning history. I would only add to this. Christian creedalism is what made the West the West. And continues to define it even today, even if it's even in its very twisted form, even after long, I mean, I'm sorry, even long after whole populations in the West have openly rejected the faith behind the creedalism that defines their culture, we still have those creeds with us today. We don't even realize how they control our world. Based on what I said so far, my thesis here today is that the uniqueness of the West was based on one little word added to the Nicene Creed by later councils, both in the East and in both in the West and in the East. Actually, there was a filioque in the East as well, about which there was no fuss or complaints in the first several centuries. And the word is filioque <clears throat> in Latin and from the Son. It has to do with the person of the Holy Spirit and His procession, like I said whether he proceeds from the Father only or from the Father and the Son. Now, the, the idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds is taken from John 15, 26, where Jesus says, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. The original Nicene Creed from the Council in AD 325 reads, who proceeds from the Father. The Western theologians and priests added the word filioque, and from the Son. For over three centuries, the church in the East and in the West 
used both formulas without argument. In the East, Cyril of Alexandria, Athanasius, John of Damascus argued that the verses where Jesus breathed upon the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, plainly teach that the Spirit proceeds from the Son as well. These are Eastern theologians. Okay? A little-known council of the Persian church, the Council of Seleucia Ctesiphon of A.D. 410, confirmed the Nicene Creed, but also added, that's the Assyrian church, also added uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Son as well. In fact, several years later, the Nestorian controversy started in the Persian church, and uh, they needed a stronger emphasis on the Trinity. In the West, where the remaining Arian influence required a much stronger declaration of the nature of the Trinity, all theologians affirmed the filioque and preached it and used it almost immediately after Nicaea. Okay? Augustine, St. <clears throat> Augustine, of course, was the theologian of the filioque. But the strongest supporter of the addition was his teacher, Ambrose of Milan. Now, I don't know if you all remember who Ambrose of Milan was. This is the same guy who told the emperor, you have no right to enter the house of a private person. What makes you believe you can enter the house of God? And seize it. Here's your first libertarian, in words at least. He was a Christian. Ambrose, having spent much of his life in the ruler's family and then a provincial governor himself, trained in the art of civil government, understood very well the practical necessity of including the filioque in the creed. The Third Council of Toledo in AD 589, presided by Leander, the older brother of Isidore of Seville, and we can talk about this guy. He's my favorite Christian reconstructionist in history. <clears throat> codified the filioque in the Western creeds. But no one in the East reacted with disapproval for, for another 40 years. It wasn't until AD 638 that a heretical Byzantinian emperor, Heraclius, used the filioque as a pretext against the Western Orthodox theologians. Later on, they had a, um, a patriarch in the, Constant, the church in Constantinople, Photius, who was actually a political power player. It wasn't a I don't even know if he was a Christian. But he, he used the filioque for a controversy. And it was in 1054 when the final schism happened over the filioque issue. My goal here is not to discuss the political reasons behind a controversy, not even the theological virtues of any of the positions involved. Um, I want to see the social theory that the filioque produced. Remember, faith has consequences. I want to see the social practice that followed from it. If Rashtuni is right, that Christian creedalism is basic to Western culture in its totality, that an important difference in the faith statement, in the credo, must cause an important difference in the culture itself between the West and the East. What is the difference that it caused? Now, in order to understand it, we need first to understand the theological implications of this point of the creed. <clears throat> what it means. What it means that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son as he does from the Father. Theologians, even those in the West, 
usually limit the discussion to issues of the nature of that proceeding, what it means that the Spirit proceeds, what kind of relationship this establishes between the persons of the Trinity. There are arguments as to whether the Spirit proceeds from the Son in the same matter he proceeds from the Father. Um, The the difference between some Greek words like uh, uh, proene and ekporeweste and so on is invoked in the matter. Uh, We may never be able to understand the exact matter of that procession. It is quite possible that we won't be allowed by God to understand it. Because it may be something that pertains to God's hidden nature. Who knows? But what is more important for us to understand today is what it means. And it means representation. John fifteen twenty six, the verse which speaks about the procession of the Spirit connects it very clearly to the Spirit's economic function in the Trinity. It is to testify of Christ. To testify of Christ. Just as the disciples were supposed to testify of Christ, and just as we are today supposed to testify of Christ. The Greek word martyrio which is used in the text, we use today, we say a martyr. Today we mean somebody who suffers for, for the faith. But the Greek word means testify, simply a witness. And it's, it means in Greek what the person has seen with his own eyes. That's what it means in Greek. The Spirit thus speaks what he has heard of Jesus, the same words that the disciples have heard of Jesus' mouth. As he makes clear in the previous chapter, in in verse 26. The Spirit, being the person of the Godhead who is constantly with us today, and is constantly guiding us and illuminating our minds, acts as a representative of the Godhead. You hear that? He is constantly with us today, and we can't know anything about God unless you're illuminated, unless your brain has been changed and turned By the Spirit in you. And thus he testifies of God. And and he acts as a representative of the Godhead. As a representative of the Father and of the Son. The relation of representation. Which has been so foundational. And so important for our human societies from the very beginning. Did not originate with man. Man normally is wants to be alone. He doesn't want to represent anybody else because representing somebody means that you need to be under their authority. And you know very well in your fallen heart how much you like being under somebody's authority. That representation was present in the Godhead in the very beginning, in the economic functions of the persons of the Godhead. We can talk about representation and delegating authority between persons in the human society today only because there is representation between the persons in the Godhead. We're just copying it from them. I mean, without that relation back to God... We're all animals. You hear that? Without that image of God in us that copies the representation principle, we're all animals. There's no society. 
There's no culture. There's no community at all. There's no connection between us. And the Holy Spirit is the representative of the Father and the Son to us today. The Spirit's procession is the same as His economic function of representation. But who does He represent? The East says, only the Father. The West says, not only the Father, but the Son also. Or, if they didn't say that clearly, it was implied in their respective views of the procession of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit only proceeds from the Father, then He represents only the Father. Well, since the Father is the Spirit Himself, John 4.24, God is a Spirit, then we have a Spirit representing a Spirit. Okay? The representation remains in the spiritual realm. We should expect that the revelation that comes from the testimony of the Spirit would remain strictly spiritual. It will stay in the spiritual realm. But a focus on the spiritual side of God would tend to separate the revelation of God from the material world. You hear that? The revelation of God will be separated from the material world. And consequently, it will leave us with little to say about our life in the material world. Even if the official doctrine doesn't preach that ontological subordinationism, the practical theology will tend to underestimate the work and the person of Jesus Christ. We're creatures of flesh and blood, and Jesus is of flesh and blood, And he had to partake of the same. Hebrews 2.14. He had to partake of the same. Can you imagine that? He partook of the same. I, I don't know how Mary felt changing the diapers of the Savior of the world. And he had to partake of the same in order to free us. Apparently, the flesh and blood characteristic of humanity has an important part to play in our justification and our sanctification. But if Jesus is not represented fully by the Spirit, then that participation, that material participation in flesh and blood was only temporary as far as we are concerned. In history, we're left with no intercessor of flesh and blood who communicates with us and with God. Do you hear that? It was only temporary. He's not represented as flesh and blood anymore to us. Consequently, whatever Jesus did while in flesh cannot be revealed to us comprehensively because the intercessory part of his ministry is to remain limited in time and not related to us by the work of the Spirit because the Spirit doesn't represent him. But if the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, the Spirit is not only representing a Spirit, but He is representing God in flesh. Okay? And if the Spirit's representing the God-man, Jesus, the intercessor between God and man, then by necessity, the central place in our theology is not an incomprehensible deity whom it takes certain mystical escape to worship, but a concrete person with whom we can identify, comprehend, 
and imitate in everything he did, including his works here on earth. What would Jesus do sounds kind of wacky for us today, but it's a very Western principle, even if twisted in our day by some pietistic sects. But it is a very Western principle. It did have a specific meaning for the Western Christianity, a meaning that has never been adopted in the East. In fact, what would Jesus do has no identifiable meaning whatsoever for an Eastern Orthodox Christian. Such a question would presuppose a really intimate connection between the worshiper and Christ, which cannot be there if the Holy Spirit is not directly representing the second person of the Trinity. Christ could be imitated in the East only in what they call the kenosis. And kenosis means emptying. The self-emptying of the believer of all material concerns, desires, and ethical struggles. The direction is from the body to the spirit, emptying the body supposedly to be full of the spirit. It's funny because when they say the the hungrier you are, the more spiritual you are. And I tried it, and I tell you what. It didn't work. (laughs) It wasn't more spiritual. Actually, I wanted to eat. In the West, since God in flesh is represented and worshipped and obeyed, imitating Christ meant from the very beginning a movement from the spirit to the body. Not emptying oneself of the physical flesh, but filling the body with the spirit, just as Christ was full with the spirit while in his body. The second person of the Trinity thus became the central figure in the Western theology based in the Filioque. Not just another saint in the pantheon of saints. If you go to an Eastern Orthodox church, you will see Jesus is just one of the the icons there. One of the images. Well, just a little bigger, but, but still one of the images here. He is a concrete person to be followed and imitated. Western theology that separated radically from the East, that its fo- in that its focus w- wasn't on the kenosis, but on the incarnation. <clears throat> it was the incarnation, God in flesh, the Word become flesh, that was to guide the development of the Western worldview. Not the emptying of the flesh. Incarnation became not only the foundation of academic and philosophical thought, it became the very foundation of Western theology. A redeemed man was supposed to be the Word incarnated. You hear that? And what Western theologians meant by it was a life of practical wisdom and obedience under God. And therefore, a redeemed society, we have lost that today, a redeemed society was supposed to be the Word incarnated. And that meant a culture of practical wisdom and obedience under God. A culture. The Reformation did not start by challenging the theology of the Roman church. It started by challenging its practice as opposed to its teachings. The Reformers required faith incarnated before they sat down to find what went wrong with with theology, creedally and theologically. See, they attacked the Roman church, not for their theology at the beginning, but they said, your theology is not in flesh in your church. 
The Eastern Church was never able to understand why the hassle. Because the very notion of practical Christian living in what is essentially morally neutral realm, society and culture is foreign to the East. The East wanted to empty itself of the flesh. The West wanted to fill the flesh with the Spirit and make it live a holy life. This had huge implications. And the implications were that the East, not having a concrete principle to reconcile body and spirit, developed a what's called dialectic worldview. Where the demands of the spiritual realm had to live in an uneasy truce with the demands of the temple realm. Like I said, once you go hungry, you want to eat more. In the West, such dialectic wasn't necessary. Obviously, if the Spirit represents God in flesh, and if incarnation is made the foundation of all thought, then there is no dualism. And therefore, no need for dialectical reconciliation between the laws for the spiritual and for the physical world. The same spiritual laws govern both. If the same spiritual laws govern all, spiritual and material world alike, then for our earthly life and experience, we need no separate source of revelation or law. No separate source, okay? All we need is look back to the laws that govern our spiritual existence and experience and apply them by case application to the material realm. There is one law for our heart and mind and for our work and life. Not two laws. The faith of a man will be revealed in what he does in the material world. We should expect then the phrase the law of God to mean different things in the East and the West. In the East, since the human and the divine will of Christ are in dialectical tension, then the law will be a dialectical tension itself. And therefore there shouldn't be any clear revelation as to what exactly the law for the material world is. And man's activity in that world would be. An Eastern theologian who has developed the Eastern doctrine of the procession of the Spirit shouldn't have any clarity as to what the law of God says to the temporal world. Okay? Only the spiritual aspect of the law, or to be precise, the mystical aspect of the law, devoid of any material uh, ideas in regards to mystical piety and sanctification not practical piety and sanctification, should be properly called law of God. The laws for practical living should be derived only kind of indirectly through metaphorical deliberation, but not by looking to the Bible, looking in the Bible for practical laws, clear laws in case applications. And indeed, the churches in Eastern Europe all publish their textbooks on the law of God, theonomia. They do have their books on the law of God. But these textbooks contain only instructions for painting images or building churches, information on the symbolic meaning of the clothes of the priests and the components of the liturgical rituals, and information on the lives of certain saints, of course, focusing on their kenotic experience in the desert. Emptying. What a Western reader would expect to see when he hears the law of God is only contained in a small part of a few parables, a few stories with deep mystical but shallow ethical content. As far as the judicial part of the law is concerned, the Eastern Church seldom offers anything more than simplistic moralism. 
In the West, on the other hand, the law of God was taken to mean a different thing. It was a code for practical living in government. It was the foundation of social order in the West. The law of God became a rule for all life in the West. A measuring rod. You know what a measuring rod, the name of it in Latin is? Canon. For everything man thinks, says, and does. The church offered an alternative to the old pagan and imperial laws in the canon law. Which was self-consciously, even if imperfectly, based on the biblical law. The problems of dialectical tension between laws for practical living and laws for spiritual experience were absent and reappeared only centuries later with the lapse of the Western church into ritualism and high churchism and so on. The same legal principles which governed our inheritance in Christ were used to form the laws for inheritance for earthly families, for example. The same legal principles which were known to govern the marriage relationship between Christ and the church were applied to the marriage code in the canon law. We as Protestants sometimes have a lot to say against scholasticism, and for a good reason. But we often forget that the founder of scholasticism, Anselm of Canterbury, opposed the mysticism of earlier theologians and worked to apply the biblical worldview to many areas of life, including civil government and the institutional division of society. Western theology did not need outside sources to formulate law. In fact, Anselm himself repeated Tertullian's and Augustine's dictum, I believe that I may understand. And Western theology did not need independent human agencies like the state or the extended family to produce social order. The laws for that social order were the same spiritual laws for the inner order in the soul of the redeemed man. Think how far we've, we've strayed away from, from this Christianity in America today. This led to the emergence of the most unique religious culture the world has ever seen. A culture of judicial religion. Of course, Israel has it in the old times, but it was not united with faith. Hebrews 4, 1 through 2 says that they had the same gospel, but it, it, it was not united with faith. But the West, especially after the 11th century, gradually turned into a judicial culture defined by common faith, based on a transcendent law independent of human interference. That was a unique culture, law independent of human interference. The world hasn't seen a culture like this before. New concepts appear, and among them the most important for the emergence of a judicial culture. The rule of law as separate from the rule by diktat or by the ruler's whim or by Congress. <clears throat> the law assumed an independent existence in that new culture, an invisible presence which forced even the powerful of the day to comply with its demands. Ever thought why the most, the mightiest um, emperor in Europe couldn't kill Martin Luther just, just on the spot? What stopped him? Can you imagine Martin Luther in the Roman Empire or in the Soviet Union? What would have happened to him? Right there, he would have been killed. And Charles V, the mighty emperor, couldn't kill Luther? (coughs) 
It was not a tool in the hands of the kings to perpetuate their power. It was the character of Christ embodied. That was the law. Presented in flesh, so to speak, in the body of the society. A judicial culture was created on the basis of a judicial religion. And the judicial culture established the practical sovereignty of God in history by establishing the sovereignty of his law. In the East, where Christ was not represented directly in the work of the Holy Spirit, the confusion of what the laws for for the temple realm uh, uh, were supposed to be grew deeper and deeper. If Christ, God in flesh, couldn't speak directly to here and now, someone else had to speak. And someone else was the emperor. Thus, in the East... That dialectical tension between material and spiritual eventually produced legislative dualism. God laid down the laws for the spirits. Caesar established the laws for the bodies of men. God laid, uh, I mean, sorry, the church thus needed the state not as an institution under the law of God. The church needed the state as a legislator beside the law of God in the East to fill the void left when the word became flesh, was given only a secondary place in theology. At the end, the state started legislating the church itself. You hear that? We know nothing about that in, this in the states right, right now, right? The state trying to legislate the church. <clears throat> and there was no theological principle the church could lean on to preserve its integrity. Because... Now the church was at the mercy of its political masters. Faith has consequences. What started as an innocent difference in wording by one word only actually led over a long period of time to a huge and not so innocent difference in faith, then ideology, then social practice, then culture, then legal rules. The changes were not immediate. But even as early as the 9th and the 10th centuries, it was visible. The Western Church was compiling the canon law. The Eastern Church was compiling the lives of the saints. The Western Church was fighting kings and emperors over the validity of the old pagan and royal laws. The Eastern Church was writing treatises on the emperors as divine legislators. The Western Church was developing the idea of the practical imitation of Christ. The Eastern Church was developing the idea of the mystical imitation, the kenosis of Christ. Christ's place in the representative work of the Spirit made all the difference. The filioque made all the difference. Even in our societies today, the difference is obvious. Even though some places in the West have completely lost any memory of the creeds and the councils and of their value in shaping the Western civilization. We still have that historical memory as a culture, as Rush Tooney pointed in one of his articles. And we still live in the historical shadow of Christendom. I venture to say that no matter how it looks to us today, we will never lose that historical memory again. There is simply nothing it can be replaced with. Philosophical paganism is dead for all practical purposes. And political paganism, what we have today, 
never built civilizations. If you're afraid of what's going on in Washington, D.C., let me tell you this. Political paganism never built civilizations. The importance of the second person of the Trinity in, in the foundation of the Western worldview is what made the West be what it is. A judicial society based on a judicial religion as over against a dualistic society based on a mystical religion as in the East. It's important also to know that in some churches in the West who have surrendered their theological heritage to statism, there are moves to reject the filioque once again. This rejection is most determined in the Anglican Church, which for the last several centuries has been simply an arm of the state, an extension of the political power. And by the way, in the 1980s, the Church of England, and in the 1990s, the, the Episcopal Church in the United States dropped the filioque from their creeds and from the Book of Common Prayer. The ecumenical movement, which is openly leftist and liberal and statist, from the beginning rejected the filioque as divisive and an unnecessary part of the faith. This shouldn't surprise us. As an article of the faith, it helped build the West into what it is. A return to the statism, tyranny, and heretical and pagan dominance of the pre-Christian ages must first, must first deal with that part of doctrine in order to, uh, uh, in order to reject the worldview of, of the Son of God. <clears throat> we need to go back to our creeds. They give us the foundation of social order. And they will help us rebuild that social order again. Faith has consequences. Thank you.